0: Well, after a few weeks away from John for Missions Emphasis, we now return to the Gospel of John as we continue on with our verse-by-verse kind of exegetical look at this great gospel account. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to open up to John chapter 19. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago with verse 17. Verse 17. And so while you're turning there, remember if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament, so kind of the the second half of your Bible, you keep flipping. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is where we'll be. Chapter 19, so look look for the big number 19, and then look for the small number 17. That's the verse that we're going to start in this morning. So please feel free to have that open with you as we're going to reference it as we go through. And remember, the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. Who is that someone? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, I would invite you to open up to John 19. Remember, if you have to use the table of contents, it's not a sin to use it. Would love for you to have that open there in front of you. And as you turn in there, I don't know if you know, but 10 years ago, this marks the decade mark, a series of four movies came out based on a series of dystopian novels by Suzanne Collins in which the United States has been replaced by the nation of Panem. And that, that series is called The Hunger Games. Ten years old from when that first movie came out. That made me feel old when I, I was like, oh, didn't that just come out like two years? No, nope, a decade ago. And uh, the, the plot line of the story is really interesting. as As punishment for a past rebellion against the capital city... There was a period called the Dark Days in which that was referred to. Ever since that time, one boy and one girl from each of the 12 districts between the ages of 12 and 18 are selected by lottery to compete in an annual pageant called the Hunger Games." And the plot follows the rise of the protagonist, Katniss Everdeen, a girl plucked from seeming obscurity in the poorest district who volunteers to take the place of her sister when her sister is chosen by that lottery to compete in the Hunger Games. And and the Hunger Games is basically a fight to the death with only one out of 24 remaining. And so the purpose of those Hunger Games by the capital city is to remind the districts of the capital's power and its lack of remorse or forgiveness for that failed rebellion. So there was this rebellion, and the Capitol says, we will bring all the weight and force of our strength upon these districts to punish them for what they had done. And as the plot unfolds, Katniss becomes known as the Mockingjay. She becomes a symbol of that rebellion against the authoritarian rule of President Snow in the capital city. And even as the capital city throws its full military power into trying to crush that rebellion and to execute Katniss, you hear multiple people say throughout the movie, we have to protect the Mockingjay at all costs. We can't let her die. She is the face of the rebellion. And you see this plot line over and over again, where you have this one who rises up, who's kind of the face of the rebellion. And they try to keep that person alive at all costs because the the rebellion kind of hinges on them. And as I was studying this passage this week, again this is familiar ground for a lot of us, but as I was studying this passage this week, I I thought about how radically different Jesus' ministry was from this very standard plot line. Instead of being protected at all costs, Jesus' entire earthly ministry was designed in the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son to lead to one moment. His very public, very brutal execution and death. It's very fitting that this passage falls on Palm Sunday because as Jesus rode into Jerusalem unprotected by an army, Mounted on a donkey, he knew full well he was riding into certain death. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 tells us a kind of about this pivot. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, speaking of Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face, was single-minded in the approach towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. Now, as we've mentioned before, no one doubts the historicity of this man named Jesus who lived in the ancient Near East, who was a religious teacher, and was killed on a Roman cross. There is an entry by Tacitus, who was a Roman senator, he was a pagan, and he wrote in his final works, which was entitled Annals, written around AD 116. Here's what he wrote. He said, Called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So again, there's no debate over whether this guy named Jesus, who was a real guy, actually got and walked around and died on a cross. The historical debate has always centered around Jesus' claim to be the divine Son of God. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where the tension comes in, and we have seen it throughout John's gospel. How many times has he gotten in trouble with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day for saying, no, I actually am the Son of God, and he was called a blasphemer, and they sought to kill him? This claim drew the ire of an entire religious establishment, the Pharisees and the entire temple establishment in Jerusalem, And they became so obsessed with killing the public face of their opposition. They say we have got to get this guy, Jesus, out of the picture. But as we'll see, all of this was done so that Scripture would be fulfilled and for a very specific reason that none of us in this room can be indifferent about this morning. So, even though this is familiar ground, you may have even already checked out right now. If so... I would invite you to perk up and pay attention this morning. Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word, really the only words that matter. We'll start in verse 17. I'm going to read it a good clip, so let's try to keep up. We've got a long way to go. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word this morning, John 19, starting in verse 17. So they, they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. "'Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, "'I thirst,' and a jar full of sour wine stood there. "'So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch "'and held it to his mouth. "'When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "'It is finished,' and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. "'Since it was the day of preparation, "'and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, "'for that Sabbath was a high day, "'the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken "'and that they might be taken away.' But the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask his help as we approach this text. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true, that it will never pass away. And as we consider the crucifixion and death of our Savior this morning, Father, you would help us to understand our sin in a deeper way, help us to understand the gospel in a deeper way, and might you receive all glory and honor. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Even though Lewis was writing about this uh, religion of Christianity, the same could be true about the Christ that this whole religion is named after. You could say it in another way. If Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he is of no importance. And if he really is the Son of God, he is of infinite importance. The only thing he cannot be is moderately important. The contrast Lewis lays out is striking because he eliminates the option of hedging our bets or sitting on the fence on the issue of who Christ really is to us. There is no middle ground. You can't just shrug your shoulders and go, I don't really care who Jesus is. He's either of no importance or he is of infinite importance. The only thing he cannot be is, eh, who cares? He says that you cannot just shrug your shoulders at the truth claims of Jesus himself and the truth claims of Christianity about him drawn from God's word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So logically, it follows that the death of Christ is either of no importance or it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so the big question this morning that we're going to ask is, why was the death of Jesus Christ of infinite importance? I'm going to argue that it's of infinite importance. You probably saw that coming. So we're going to ask that question. Why is the death of Jesus actually of infinite importance, and why should we care? Two points if you're a note-taking type of person. We're going to see the reasons for the death of Christ, and then we're going to see the results of the death of Christ. So the reasons and the results. Let's look at that first point. The reasons for the death of Christ, this will be the longest one as we've got some explaining to do. Let's dive in. Now we left off a few weeks ago with Pontius Pilate delivering Jesus over to be crucified after being beaten by the Romans and mocked by a mob led by the Jewish chief priest. He's weak. Jesus is weak. He's broken. He's bloody. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. That's where we left Jesus off in this narrative. So remember that as we go forward. And as we've mentioned before, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. They kind of hang together as they move through the narrative, and they hang closely together. John is different. John is much more theological and focuses on Jesus' eternal, divine nature. Remember how the book starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is making the case throughout the gospel that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be, which is the divine Son of God. For an example, how they differ. The synoptics record all seven statements of Jesus from the cross. John only includes three. So you see there's a little bit of a difference there. And I'd invite you to go if you want to. Go back and read one of the synoptics, and they all kind of fill in the gaps. And the Gospels actually tell us very little about the crucifixion because in the ancient Near East, everyone knew the details all too well. Little is said about Jesus' procession to the cross because such processions were very common under Roman occupation. See, we forget that Rome crucified people left and right. Jesus was not the first one to ever be crucified. And so this procession through the streets was pretty common. That's why readers back in the ancient Near East, they would have read this and go, oh yeah, I've seen that before. I don't need the details. I know it. I get it. We forget also, too, that ancient Rome was very skilled at executing subversives. Christians were very common, and they were often used as warnings to quell rebellions. You had Rome was very skilled at this. There have been some that have argued, as we'll talk about next week with the resurrection, that Jesus really didn't die. He just kind of passed out due to all the pain. That is so silly when you think about Rome and what they did day in and day out. These soldiers were trained killers. They knew exactly what a dead body looked like. People around them, people in the town, knew what dead bodies looked like. And so what happened is Jesus actually really died a real death in real space and time at the hands of other people in real space and time in history. Nobody doubts that. But look at verse 17 and 18. Many scholars think that Jesus was forced to carry the horizontal beam of the cross. The vertical beam was fixed in the ground for reuse. Remember, crucifixions are normal. And so Jesus was, was made to carry this horizontal beam. I mean, imagine like carrying a railroad tie. Heavy, bulky, His back is all torn up and you're carrying this scratchy, heavy thing that you're having to drag through the streets and everybody's mocking you and everybody sees it. Put yourself in that picture and dwell upon it. The vertical beam, was many scholars think, was permanently fixed in the ground for reuse. And so it looked like a tree trunk when not in use. Jesus was forced to take this long road. As a warning to others, it's been called the Via della Rosa. And here's what Ian Duguid said As for their destination, John notes that the place in Greek was called the place of a skull. The Latin word for the Greek term rendered skull, cranion, is Calvaria. Our English word Calvary is a transliteration of that Latin word. And as we think about what's going on here with the crucifixion, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit this morning. Don't miss the significance of Jesus being killed outside the camp as a sin offering. We see that in Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, in the work of the high priest. There was this lamb, these bulls that were taken, the scapegoat, the sins of the people transferred, and that goat sent out. John and the synoptics also tell us that Jesus was crucified between two others. In Isaiah 53, Verse 12, Isaiah 53, that passage that we referenced earlier, the suffering servant, says that he was numbered among the transgressors. You are seeing Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in all full living color. You think about those two people that Jesus was crucified between and the contrast among them is really shocking if you go back and read the synoptics. One used his dying breaths to mock Christ. The other used his dying breaths to confess Christ as Lord. Again, you see that no middle ground. Even there at the cross, Jesus hanging between two thieves. The contrast is stark. Once outside the walls of Jerusalem, he was crucified. Most people think that you know, spikes were driven either through the hands or either through here in the wrist, right here, either way somewhere in that general vicinity, and you can imagine it hurt. Then also through his feet. And there was a little platform that, he was, that was right up underneath his feet. And what that allowed you to be able to do as you were hanging there is if you needed to catch a breath, you could push up and pull up on those hands that were pierced, catch a breath, and then slump back down. The brutality of this method of execution cannot be overstated. I'm not going to go into all the particulars But it cannot be overstated. It has been referred to as one of the most barbaric, torturous, and humiliating deaths ever conceived of by mankind. It was designed to be a prolonged, punishing torture for those who was accused. I mean, imagine even giving you that little block of wood that if you need to catch a breath, even that was designed to help keep you alive a little bit longer. Brutal. Utterly brutal. Public as a warning. In Rome's eyes, the reason for Christ's execution because he was seen as a threat to their rule and authority over that region of Samaria and the government complex. In verse 19 you see that Pilate writes something. It was customary for the charges against the one being crucified to be written on a sign and attached on the cross somewhere. It may have been above the head, it may have been it was where other people could read it and know why is this person being crucified? They were only concerned with preserving their image and power, the might of Rome. And what we see is God used the words of a fed-up pagan to publicly announce the true kingship of Christ. Remember, the Jews come to him and say, hey, can you change the wording? And he said, nope, what I've written, I've written. Remember, in the past, the, the... Pontius Pilate was so fed up with the Pharisees. They were constantly rebelling against him, and this whole Jesus thing had gotten out of hand, and he was looking to just, let's tie this thing off and be done with it. And even then, they're coming and trying to change it. So you see, in the Pharisees' eyes, the reason for Christ's execution was because he was seen as a threat to their rule and their authority over the religion of Samaria. Not the region, but the religion of Samaria and that whole entire temple complex, They had been plotting his death since the beginning of his earthly ministry, and they were still only concerned with preserving their image and power. And they see Pilate's public words as an attack on their authority because Jesus is called their king. Look in verses 20 through 22. Even as Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, the Pharisees still object. They got what they wanted, but yet it's still not good enough. And look at verses 23 and 24. Not only was Jesus' dignity taken away from him on the cross, most people believe they were crucified stark naked in front of everybody. When you see the little paintings with the, you know, that he's got like a little bit of cloth wrapped around him, that's just for modesty's sake. They were crucified publicly and naked. So, not only was Jesus' dignity taken away from him at the cross, the last of his earthly possessions were taken away from him too as the soldiers gambled for his clothes. But did you notice that little phrase in verse 24? That's where the light comes on. It says, This was to fulfill the scripture. Used three times in this section verse 24, 28, and verse 36. Because we think we've talked about what is the reasons for Christ's execution in Rome's eyes, in the Pharisees' eyes, but in the eyes of God the Father. The reason for Christ's execution was to fulfill the Scripture by securing an eternal redemption for the elect by dying in their place. And you think about the drama of what's going on here, it was at this point that Satan thought that he was about to finally snuff out that promised redeemer mentioned all the way back in Genesis 3:15. Here's my chance. I've been trying to wipe him out. Herod, you know, been trying to wipe out the seed, David and Absalom and Herod and this promised one, he's coming. He thinks I'm just about to get it done. This promised redeemer. But every bit of this was under the sovereign will of God for the redemption of his chosen people. Here's what Kent Hughes said, which I thought was interesting. He said, The Lord's enemies intended the positioning of the crosses to be his final disgrace, Christ between two convicted robbers, as if he were the worst. Instead of being a disgrace, however, that arrangement was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53:12, numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, And makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, I simply do not have time, we would be here till five o'clock. I simply do not have time to go through and point out all the ways that we see the scripture fulfilled in these verses. Jesus' thirst in verse 28 was the thirst of the Messiah anticipated all the way back in Psalm 22, but it's also our thirst. Jesus became thirsty for us so that we would never thirst again. John 4, 14. Remember, we covered that ground. His bones remaining unbroken because Jesus died as the ultimate Passover lamb. Exodus 12, Numbers 9. But as we think about the reasons for Christ's death, chief among them, and don't miss this. The reasons for Christ's death, as we think about them, chief among them is our sin. Because it should have been us on the cross. We are all covenant breakers. Every one of them, every one of us deserve the curse because of our sin. The gospel of grace is never gonna make sense to you until you realize that unavoidable fact about the heinousness of your own sin against a holy God and his holy law. It's never going to make sense until you see the bad news of your own position before that holy God and realize, uh oh, I've got a big problem. It's never going to make sense. You'll keep thinking that you're a pretty good religious person and you'll think, oh, poor Jesus, instead of, it should have been me. You'll think, oh, poor Jesus, he got caught up, but I can still do it myself, instead of saying, no, 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 it should have been me on the cross. The gospel's never going to make sense until you wrestle with the bad news. Nothing's good news until you hear the bad news first. That's why we call the gospel good news. If you're here and you do not see your need for Christ, do not close your ears to the reality on the ground as you stand under the gaze and the judgment of a holy and righteous God. You have to talk about this. You have to understand this if Jesus is going to make any difference or why you should care at all. Don't miss the reality on the ground. Romans 3:10 through 12, no one is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9:22, without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. I'm not up here going, "Oh, poor you. Me too." Me too. I'm just as much of a sinner as you are. I need Christ too. Don't miss the reality on the ground. God's holy. Sin is an offense against His holy nature. He will punish it. And you think, well, I'm not really feeling it. Doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't matter if you don't believe it. I don't care if you don't believe it. It still makes it true. It is an unavoidable fact. And in your pride and your arrogance, you think you know better than the Lord God Almighty. And I've got some bad news for you. That you will stand before Him one day, uncovered without a mediator. And I, as a minister in the gospel, am pleading with you for the love of Jesus to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ. Please, look at the reality of the ground. Who do you think you're messing with? It's easy to smirk your way through it. God is holy. He is a just judge. He will not be trifled with. That's the bad news. I promise I got some good news coming, but that's the bad news. You got to feel the weight of it. There's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. You are either under the wrath of God or you are under the blood of Christ. God will not be mocked, and despite your foolish arrogance and pride, you will stand justly condemned for all eternity. That's forever and ever and ever. You will stand condemned for all eternity under the wrath of a a just God, and you will deserve every bit of it. Justice and righteousness are always linked together in the Scripture. It points to the goodness of God. Think about this. A judge who never punishes evil is not a good judge, is he? Because he's not a just judge. God's justice demands that evil be punished. He sees your sin. You'll be judged as the face of your own cosmic rebellion on the day of judgment. That's terrible news. Just like Katniss was the face of the rebellion, you will be the face of your own rebellion. But... I got some good news for you. Jesus is the face of your rescue because God has made a way for a bunch of covenant-breaking sinful people like you and I to be saved and declared righteous in His sight. And it's through Jesus. It's the best news ever. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. You see, it was our sin that nailed Him to the cross. And as Christ died the death that we did deserve, He secured our pardon that we didn't deserve. And all of it is by grace. You see, we could not save ourselves, so Jesus came to do it for us because He loves us. Think about the transaction that's happening here. Let's just take a mental break. Think about in the midst of the cross, the midst of Jesus' bloody body nailed to a cross on public display and the agony that's there. And think about even in the midst of that, he still takes care of his mama, doesn't he? You see the compassion... And the love of Christ in verses 26 and 27. As Jesus fulfills his duty as an earthly son by seeing that his mother would be cared for after his death. And what does he give her? He gives her a substitute. Behold your son. Another substitution was also occurring as Christ hung on the cross of spiritual one. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Substitutionary atonement is not just a fancy theological term. It's the very heart of the gospel, and it's the very center of your salvation. Because the biggest injustice that was ever committed when the perfect Son of God was nailed to the cross was the place where the true justice of God, His wrath justly poured out for sin, And the deep mercy of God, the blood of another spilled for you. Where did the justice of God and the mercy of God meet? They met at the cross, they met at Calvary. Verse 30 is incredible news for those who trust in Christ. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Unbelievable good news. The Greek word translated, it is finished, tetelestai, is actually a commercial term. It's used, it's used to describe what happened when the final payment has been made. Like Think about you pay off a bank note, you pay off a car loan, you pay off the credit card bill, whatever it is, and you get that bill back that says paid in full. That's what we're talking about. A transaction that happened. Christ's substitutionary work was accomplished. The purchase price of redemption had been paid. And the wrath of God had been put away because it had been fully poured out on Christ, His Son. And He was treated like a covenant breaker and a covenant and a sinner in our place. And now, because of Christ, our sin debt has been paid and God's wrath has been put away. Let that sink in. Because of Christ, the wrath of God has been put away. As you're in Him, and you trust Him by faith. And so the question then is this. Do you trust Christ by faith as your mediator today? Do you trust Him as your mediator today? Or are you still clinging tightly to the raft of your own moral and religious record, trying to do it all on your own? Are you able to confess it is Christ and Christ alone, and He's all I got? I need a mediator. Now, he's my mediator. Or are you still trying to do it yourself? You will either experience the holy, lov- loving presence of God without a me- with a mediator, which is heaven, or you will experience the holy, wrathful presence of God without a mediator, which is hell. That's the reality on the ground. There's no middle ground. Christ's atoning death is either of zero importance or of infinite importance, Which brings us to our second very short point. I promise the results of Christ's death. The reasons for Christ's death, your sin. My sin. The results of Christ's death. Remember, Roman soldiers were trained killers and Jesus wasn't the first person they had crucified. Verse 34, they knew Jesus was already dead, but they pierced his side with a spear just to make sure... And John ensures us of this reality in verse 35 and reminds us yet again the Scripture was being fulfilled as Zechariah 12.10 was fulfilled in his sight, as verse 37 tells us. Look at verse 38. One of Jesus' disciples, Joseph of Arimathea, he's mentioned only in connection with this event. That's, That's all we know about him. He takes the dead body of Jesus down from the cross. And do you notice who also accompanied him? Who also shows up in the picture? There's old Nicodemus again. Nicodemus shows up. He had probably secretly become a follower of Christ and now publicly identified with him as he brought an unbelievably expensive amount of spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. It was customary for them to cover it with sweet-smelling stuff to cover the stench of a decomposing body. That's why they did that. And in in verses 41 and 42, there was a pressing need to bury Jesus because the high Sabbath of the Passover was the next day. And leaving a body on the cross would ceremonially defile the land and no work was to be done on the Sabbath, especially this one. Providentially, there was a new unused tomb nearby and the synoptics tell us that that same Joseph of Arimathea owned that tomb, showing that he was a wealthy man. What they do is they lay their Savior in the tomb, they roll the stone across the entrance, and the earthly ministry of Jesus, theologically called His humiliation, comes to an end quietly. But as Andrew Peterson wrote in his great song that we're going to sing the Monday after Easter, Six days shall you labor, the seventh is the Lord's. In six He made the earth and all the heavens, but He rested on the seventh. God rested He said that it was finished, and on the seventh day he blessed it, and God rested. Why? Because it is finished. So why should you care that a man named Jesus died? Because when he said it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. It is finished. This work of redemption is done. It has been accomplished. John Owen in his great book, The Death of Christ, I'm almost done, hang with me. Here's what he said. We, according to the Scriptures, plainly believe that Christ hath by His righteousness merited for us grace and glory, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in, through, and for Him, that He has made unto us righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that He hath procured for us, and that God, for His sake, bestowed on us every grace in this life that make us differ from others. And all that glory we hope for in that which is to come, He procured for us remission of all of our sins, an actual reconciliation with God, faith, and obedience. Basically what that means is Jesus did it all. He did every bit of it. Every stinking bit of it. For you, and for you, and for y'all, and for me. Christ has done it. He's finished it. Romans 5, 8-10, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Romans 6, 5-6, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Spoiler alert, that's where we're going next week. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And Colossians 1.20 reminds us of this wonderful promise that we rest in today, that Christ made peace by the blood of His cross. So again, what is it for you today? The death of Christ. Is it of no importance or is it of infinite importance? There is no middle ground. The cross doesn't really matter, or it means everything. Where are you today? Do you trust Christ as your mediator? Again, I plead with you leave your self salvation project behind and flee to Christ. Look to Christ and Christ alone. This is why Christ's death was of infinite importance. He was the face of our rescue. And his words hang like you over a banner if you trust in him by faith this morning. And what are those blessed, sweet words? It is finished. It's done. God's wrath put away. So if you're here this morning and you trust Christ, i got some good news for you. Your sin debt has been put away because Christ himself died in your place. And to that we say amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and grace towards us accomplishing what we could never do in and of ourselves. I pray in these moments that we would do a little business with you. We would really consider where we stand before a holy, holy, holy God who takes sin this seriously. Lord, I pray that we would really sit and dwell upon where we stand with Jesus. Either he is of no importance or he is of infinite importance. The only thing he cannot be is moderately important. Lord, help us to dwell upon the death of Christ, especially as we enter into Holy Week. Lord, especially as we consider your coming into the world to rescue and redeem us and to die a real death in real space and time, to redeem us in real space and time. At just the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, may we realize that our sin debt was placed in the tomb, and it died there. And now we have the hope of the resurrection and the glory yet to come. And that is sealed and guaranteed not by anything that we have done, but by the blood of Christ.